Welcome back to the docket. It's the audio wing of bestevidence.fyi. I'm your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting, and I'm here, as always, with Northern California expert, Eve Beatty. Hi, Eve. Hello, Sarah. Well, so today we're going to be talking about um, the curse of Yuba City, California. Uh, but it does seem like part of our discussion is about how we didn't really know that there was a curse of Yuba City, California. So, Eve, I wanted to ask you before I get into uh, what um, wiki holes led me to this conversational topic. Had you heard of Yuba City and had you heard of any um, of the many horrible things that have befallen Yuba City in the last hundred years? Well, my relationship with Yuba City goes back almost 20 years, Sarah. That's when my friend Amanda, who I believe subscribes to Best Evidence, asked me if I wanted to go to a baby shower there. A buddy of hers from college, who was from Yuba City, was having one. It was at a rec center. It was completely fine. But I remember looking around this place and thinking, oh, my God, this looks like where I'm from in Indiana. And like that is, I think, one of the first sort of really the, the strong understanding that I had that you get outside of any big city by 20 minutes and you might as well be in whatever name of red state, weird place here. Right. Um, desolate, uh, huge pockets of poverty, income inequality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's the thing is, you know, like, California, well, I guess not Fox News, but everyone else talks about California like it's the land of milk and honey, but still, there are huge swaths of it that are extremely poor, um, extremely ugly, um, and uh, Yuba City is, without due respect to everyone who lives there, one of them. That said, it's usually warm there. Hmm. Well, t- tell us a little more about where Yuba City is in relation to San Francisco, Sacramento, et al., I'm, I just I want to look and see how far it is from my house. It's north of Sacramento. And that's one of the things is that I think it's easy to think of as like sort of the central. But like, I think many people in their minds conflate it with like Bakersfield or something like that. Yeah, with, I think you I know, sort like right in thought, the center. Yeah, that it was like in that weird, like zip codes to start with nine, three. Like, I'm not sure exactly where that would be. Where is the Feather River? And then I was surprised at how far north it was. Um, it's yeah, it's, cities, it's north Marysville, of Sacramento, and they're yeah. on either side of the Feather River. And I think Marysville is just kind of just Marysvilling along with way fewer floods, florid car crashes, bus wrecks, um, hauntings researched by the school newspaper, um, developmentally delayed men wandering into the forest after a basketball game. It just seems like a lot of weird shit. I came to this topic because I, at Exhibit B Books, got a big whack of old paperbacks, in, including one that I had not had cross my desk by, uh, before by Victor Villasenor called Jury. And it is the account of um, the Juan Corona case um, via only like an account of the jury's deliberations because this went through a couple of trials and the prosecution was a bit muddled. So I was like, huh, 
Where, who recommended this to me? Well, um, Bill James highly recommended the book In Popular Crime. And let me just read you from his account of the Juan Corona case, which all started coming down in 1971. On the morning of May 24th, 1971, a man who owned an orchard near Yuba City, California, noticed a hole in the ground on an isolated part of his property, a hole about the size and shape of a shallow grave. When he passed the same spot later in the day, after dark, the hole had been filled. The man called the police, who sent someone out the next day to investigate. Numerous sources say that the orchard owner called police because he thought someone was illegally burying trash on his property. This seems really unlikely. If I saw a grave-sized hole on my property and then was walking by there at night and saw that it had been filled in, my first instinct would be to pee in my pants. Also, anybody who thinks that you can complain about somebody burying trash on your property and the police will rush out to investigate has been dealing with very different policemen than I have. Anyway, police found a grave and looking around, found others. They found a total of 25 graves. Juan Corona was arrested on May 26th. Three things focused the investigation on Corona. All of the bodies had been hacked and chopped in an unusual way with a specific pattern of injuries. When information about this was relayed over police networks, police in Marysville sent information that a man attacked in a bar in 1970 had suffered, but survived, a similar wound pattern. The chief suspects in that investigation had been the owner of the bar, Natividad Corona, and his brother Juan. Juan Corona ran the work crews of migrant laborers on the two farms where the bodies were discovered. He could come and go freely over those properties and had been seen there on the day the bodies were discovered. And then they found a receipt in the grave, and then they found a 25th grave after he was arrested. Um, And then he had dumped, like, a bunch of other receipts and, like, items from the commissions of the crime into this last grave, like a real smart smarty. Um, He was eventually convicted and died in prison. But I thought to myself, rereading this account, and I've read this book several times, um, why... Don't we talk about this case? Like, it it becomes apparent that he murdered 25 people, mostly unhoused, transient people with substance misuse problems, in the course of like six weeks. This was a huge, huge number. Um, this had, like, I don't want Ryan Murphy to get anywhere near this, but this would be Murphy nip for sure. Um, it seemed that he, he was married to a woman and they had children, but he was conflicted. But this was like a, this was a preoccupying case of the early seventies, but nobody mentions it anymore. And then there was this book that apparently was brilliant and has a pink cover and paperback guys. No, um, but why do we talk about this case? And then I just looked up Yuba City and the the Wikipedia entry barely mentions Juan Corona. It's all like the Yuba City Five or um, Gregory Gross, who got like tased into paralysis. Speaking of litigation, which we did last week, um, the the bus disaster, the plane crash, people haunting the football field. Why do why do we think that this particular case has vanished when other cases from around the same time have have like sustained? Well, you want to hear my conspiracy theory? Always. 
So I think that it is because it did not fit with the narrative that the FBI was building regarding profiling because it violates Ah. two of the biggest rules of profiling. One, that serial killers are white males and two, that people typically that serial killers typically kill within their race because Mm. Juan Corona was, I believe that he was from, yeah, he was, he was from Mexico Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, got here in 1950 um, and his victims, all of them were middle-aged Caucasian males. Mm-hmm. And so this does not fit into the John Douglas, Robert Ressler, that entire sort of, you know, profiler industrial complex that mm-hmm. I'd argue until fairly recently, even people like you and I sort of like we would cite this stuff as facts. At least I would. I I don't know if you did, but yeah. I would be like, well, that, that this is how it works, you know. And I just sort of believed it because it's one of the, you know, it like basically, you know, the John Douglas books were arguable textbooks for us in sure like the nineties and early aughts, right? We're like, this is Douglas states all this is fact, therefore it's fact, right? And, and his quite I think, smug about going against the grain on that with um, the Atlanta child murders, which yeah. now I think that that conclusion is deeply flawed but anyway continue yeah but no but i think that that's exactly it is that this is a case where this is not a case of mass homicide that was done for reasons of financial gain or anything like that this was clearly serial killing it seems very likely with a sexual motive i mean it was this was something that was done for fun and not to make money is basically what i'm saying right mm-hmm. and um but this if you're gonna like this is like to me a prime example of um creaming your results which sounds very vulgar as i say it but anybody who does like research or statistical analysis knows what i'm talking about here we're gonna leave out the cases that don't go with the theory that we're selling or that we're married to and this one doesn't go with it so much this this was arguably one the the most prolific confirmed serial killing case for years and years and years and years and years and um i think that it would have upended you know everything that sort of made mind hunter mind hunter uh is that right yeah and everything else that the entire foundation we have of how we talk about serial killers, this case would have upended it. And it also would have made, I think a lot of uh, feds jobs harder. If you started to start thinking about this more. I had not thought about it from that angle, but I think you're dead on. And I think that when it comes to creating a discipline that is, let's face it, a lot more art than science, even in the proportions that they'll admit to um, that, you want, I really don't want to use the word sexy, but I think they probably did amongst themselves. So you're trying to sell this to superiors and traditionalist, like shoe leather investigator, quote, fans in the bureau. And so you need, um, you need cases that, like you said, fit your framework 
that fit into that this data is not going to throw off the whole thing and make it look sort of ambiguous. But I think if you're John Douglas and Robert Ressler, you probably want, uh, like, I don't even know, you want the first slide in your PowerPoint to be Bundy. Because he's or Kemper or yeah, yeah exactly like, that they're sort of um, like a like a nay plus ultra in some ways, but also that it's like it's heterosexual and a little simpler to quote pitch a profile that is not you know quote down low or self-loathing or whatever Juan Corona's deal was. But the the other fact is like the Bureau was extremely white and may still be. I don't know anything about it, but certainly um, as uh, as Sarah Marshall said on the You're Wrong About, about mine hunting, like J. Edgar Hoover wanted his agents to look like Clyde Tolson, so everybody did. Um, and then I think they just weren't necessarily thinking that crimes committed by non-white people were going to work in the in the sales meeting and i am sorry to put it this way but i feel like this was the bau's focus at this time was to try to sell its own existence and that they were focused on that so i'm not saying it's right i'm saying this is how i think they were thinking he was in Cal State Prison. He could have been interviewed by um, by those folks. He was there. He was just as accessible as Kemper and Bundy and all of these other people that the FBI sent out to interview. I mean, he spoke English mm-hmm. there. And even, you know, at that time, there were plenty of people in the FBI who also spoke Spanish. So that wouldn't have been a problem either. And actually would have been an interesting season of Mindhunter, the whole like God, navigating yeah. the immigrant community thing. That would mm-hmm. have been nice. But, you know, like I'm not obviously they, we, we don't actually have that. Um, you know, he was I think it's safe to say he was mentally ill and probably, you know, he was in um the state hospital in Auburn at some periods, but, you know, he sort of bounced back and forth, but he, you know, lived. Oh, but what I was saying is the reason that he had a life sentence as opposed to the death penalty, which was still very active in California up through the odds is because um, he was convicted in 73. He um, successfully, not he himself, but he successfully argued that he had incompetent representation and um, got a new trial in 82, um, you know, a dec- almost a decade later. And all this is actually like pretty interesting stuff. And I'm, I'm assuming that that's what a lot of that book is about, mm. is that, you know, even in cases where it's pretty clear that you did it, you still have the right to a new trial if your attorney was incompetent. And I think that that's, that's good. That's all positive. But the thing is, this is prime time for the profiling sort of game too and he was right there he was accessible he wasn't Mm -hmm. going anywhere yeah it's just um it's just uh an interesting case to look at if uh, you know you spend as much time as we do thinking about you know missing white woman syndrome and how this is like the converse of that 
and how if we are talking about the genre as entertainment, which for good or ill, it it is. There is a, you know, entertainment industrial complex of true crime. But when you look at the cases that are not considered um, marketable or packageable, um, and it's because for whatever reason, nobody, like nobody had that um, top selling book about it. Nobody took the case seriously as something that should be made into a miniseries for sweeps period. Um, nobody thought that it was, nobody thought that it would sell as an, as a narrative packaged property. And, uh, just value neutrally, I, as a true crime consumer and reviewer, am always interested in cases that seem like they're precedent setters or they're part of a larger context like Yuba City, which does really seem like maybe someone should. Um, last one to leave, turn down the, you know, turn off the lights and salt the earth kind of thing. Like there, <laughs> it's been a lot of bad shit that's also kind of creepy and random and if I were from Yuba City I don't think I would go back there for holidays because I'd be a little scared but um that this case which was an amazing like it was a high number of murders in a short period of time and there were a number of other issue capital I issue axes along which the story existed and yet it didn't catch the imagination but at the same time the passage i just read you is from a book called popular crime which is contemplating the cases that did capture the public imagination so maybe this really was top of mind for people 40 years ago but then once it was like adjudicated the second time everyone was like well we don't have to think about this lunatic non-white person anymore dust hands goodbye like i I don't get it because it seems like the kind of seems like the kind of case that you would hear about over and over again, that every single like oxygen would manage to fit it into like three different seasons of three different shows. But I, I've never heard anyone talk about this case except Bill James. Have you? I, okay. So I am pretty sure that I had a sort of baseline familiarity with it just because um, I was doing some wire editing in, um, mm. I want to say maybe, yeah, in like sort of the early to mid um, aughts. And when you're doing wire editing, you get you get these like weird sort of like pictures in your head. So oh, wire editing, for those of you who don't know, is you're taking stories that are on like national and local wire services and putting them on like you know the website of like a main publication so when you see like ap stories or whatever your local newswire is a wire editor is the person who's making the calls and actually like doing the sort of dumb legwork of making sure things are formatted correctly or whatever so um you get these weird sort of pictures of these towns that you're unfamiliar with like oh this must be the animal hoarder place or this is where all the meth is or something right and um yuba city was the place once again where it just seemed like it wasn't just like the standard like meth bust animal hoarding you know mm -hmm. uh trained derailment it was always like the 
fucked up crimes. And so I do remember sort of Googling it and going down this hole and seeing this, you know, this serial, I mean, God bless Wikipedia. It's, it's almost like it's always been there. Um, And seeing the serial killing case and then thinking, well, you know, it's just another one and sort of forgetting about it until you brought it up a couple of weeks ago. Well, and I am now looking at uh, Juan Corona's Wikipedia page as well. His middle name is Vallejo, which, hmm, hmm, total coincidence. It's just interesting. Not everything means Ah. something, Um, but he died in prison at, he lived to a ripe old age. He died in 2019. Um, at like minutes before we started the newsletter, I think actually it was March of 2019. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the lead paragraph talks about like, just gives you the overview of him and why he is on Wikipedia. And it says this quote at the time, his crimes were characterized as among the most notorious in U S history until the discovery of Dean Corll's victims in 1973, Corona was the deadliest American serial killer by number of proven victims. So I think this might go a ways towards explaining it too, except that Dean Corll, that case has always sort of mystified me as to why it's not much better known. I think for true crime people, like, they know who he is. There's a shorthand for that. Like, quote, everybody knows that Truman Capote went down to Texas to that hearing and then nothing came of it for a bunch of different reasons. But then recently, Sarah Weinman was talking, like, we were talking about it and it was like, oh, almost nobody who's not us, like, civilians don't know that case. It's not like a, it's not like a one name thing you really have to like explain and go back and like one of his victims escaped and killed so i would say corona was big news until dean coral came along and like out deadlied him i guess in the headlines but i i don't know if that's true and i don't know how well known dean coral well i think there's also there's the element of sort of pedantry that comes along with proven victims as opposed to confessed victims. Mm, and I mean, yeah. I'm a proud pedant when it comes to this. I am a firm believer that proven victims are the real number and confessed yep. victims are oftentimes bullshit. And that's why yeah. I'm so skeptical about the numbers attributed to, say, Samuel Little. Well, that's the one that I have the biggest beef with. But I've got others, too. I won't Henry bore you Lee all Lucas with them today because they're unrelated my, to you. Uh, Henry oh, Lee Lucas is my big yeah. one because um, law enforcement was just so happy to always believe that he'd killed yeah fucking everyone like the romanovs marilyn monroe law enforcement's like fine case closed stamp like guys seriously it's physically impossible for him to have killed some of these people yeah and the same like with with i-80 and btk and stuff like that like people just want to sort of it's they're the junk drawers right you just Mm -hmm. you put all of the stuff you haven't cleared with them and you know you do sort of the you off if they're still alive, you offer them, you know, whatever, an extra pack of smokes to confess to this because they're already going to be there for the rest of their lives. Sure, yeah, why not? Like trying to pin Zodiac's crimes, whoever Zodiac yeah. was, plur- singular or plural, like, oh, Juan Corona's middle name was Vallejo. Guess he's the Zodiac. Sure. Yeah. Looks nothing like yeah. my dad. Can't be him. Anyway, go on. Sure. But I mean, but that's exactly, but that's exactly, you know, sort of what I'm talking about is that 
we do know that there were 25 victims. So that means there are probably more. Um, but we've got the 25 confirmed victims, which makes him, I think, a bigger deal to pedantic people like you and me. But, you know, if we just ask, like, the average, like, ding-dong on the street who only listens to Crime Junkie, God, listen to the contempt with which I said that. I'm a terrible person. But if we did that, we'd say, like, oh, who's the most prolific, like, serial killer? They'd probably say something stupid like Ed Gein, you know, who barely killed anybody. I know. He let other people do the killing, and that's when Ed Gein really... (laughs) Was a Viking. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the fact that um, I keep coming back to this Bill James book, which is, again, not perfect, but I think his attempt to kind of try to quantify, like, what is a popular crime? Like, what are these, what are these um, cases that we still talk about 50 years later, 100 years later, 200 years later? Um, And I think... I think that that's worth doing. And I think the way that he does it, it can be a little glib, but he's trying to systematize um, levels of like uh, information and attention, which I think is worth doing. And I'm fascinated by that process. But I've also been, I'm trying to like find a way to boil this down to like a term that is short, but also conveys what I'm trying to say, which is that sometimes a property seems like it should be a corker or sometimes a case seems like it would lend itself to um, excellent or compelling narrative because the case itself is kind of wild or it's a first of its kind in some way, but then that doesn't really translate. So it's like you just list the facts that are on the Wikipedia page and then you're like, yeah, actually, just by making this list, I've I've done it. Like, we don't need to do this podcast. We don't need this three-part docuseries. Like, what is that, what is that um, ineluctable thing that means that a case, uh, either that it's sort of straightforward-seeming case, makes a wonderful narrative or that a like completely crazy truth is stranger than fiction case, you turn it into a documentary and it's like, ugh, you're like checking your watch. Well, I bet the Lost in translation could... cases? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I my guess is okay, my guess is that it's the same as sort of figuring out like what stories are gonna go viral on mm. your website or whatever else, right? Mm-hmm. I bet you if we had and if you are this person get in touch we can we don't have to use your name um somebody who produces on a show like nancy grace Mm -hmm. um i or you know the countless other sort of nancy grace sort of shows where they're going through a lot of different things and you know the clips end up on youtube or whatever Mm -hmm. but so but a producer on a show like that um those are the people who probably if they have been in their jobs a while, have that sense about what will, for lack of a better term, because this is crass and gross, be viral yeah. and what crimes will Heat not mapping. be. Because Yeah, look, yeah, we, yeah, all, yeah. we all did it. We all yeah, did yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, the Eater 38. Um, but, you know, who, which ones are going to grab people? Because I do think it is more complicated than just, um, this is a dead white woman, even though that is probably a uh, a governing factor a dead good looking white woman, but there's more to it than that. Cause there are plenty of dead, good looking white women that also I think don't get clicks. Right. Um, and so 
those people could probably answer when they know in their gut that this is something that's going to work and when it doesn't. Um, and they probably have a far greater sense of it than you or I do because we're so down in the trench. We don't even know anymore. Right. Well, and I, I don't, also don't think it's wrong to sort of look at a story and be like, that's going to get eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Let's tell that story. Like everybody's trying to eat. So, yeah. but without judgment, it's just interesting to me to look at, and Bill James tries to do this, all the different variables that might go into um, a, a case being ugh, clicky or not, or just sort of sliding off the sliding off people's brains and not not engaging. I mean, you know, I hate to go back to Ted Bundy because I hate that fucking so many true crime creators keep going back to keep going back to Ted Bundy, but it's not that difficult to see why he was a huge story and stayed a huge story. I mean, interstate this, all the victims looked the same. There was a VW bug involved. There was multiple Lamster incidents. I mean, it it was a lot of outre elements that all combined to a very compelling package, whether we like it or not. And I kind of don't, especially. And I feel like we should make all of the content about Carol Durant from now on because she was awesome. Still is, right? Yeah. She's still alive. I think so, yeah. I feel like she, uh, yeah, she was at least when we started this newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. No, because I, I remember like writing about an interview with her or something like on some anniversary. That's the yeah. only reason. Yeah, I- that sounds right. And I think she was in that, um, I forget the name of it, but the miniseries with um, Bundy's lady friend, Liz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But I, I do mean, believe that properly packaged, you can take a lot of these stories that have interesting elements and make people aware of them and gain their attention. And, but it's just, it just comes down to like wanting to do the work of it, it like whatever you're going to get a click. If you have Prince Harry in the headline, just like you're going to get a click. If you have Ted Bundy in the headline, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a little more work to convince people that they, but you know, you think about all the people who, read cat person or uh, I'm trying to think of another like sort of non-famous person's like, you know, whatever long reader story or something that went viral. Candy Montgomery, no one knew the hell the hell she was. And mm-hmm. that is something that all of a sudden, and, and nobody knew who the hell Candy Montgomery was three years ago, except for people like you and me and our, you know, our listeners. And now everybody does. Yeah. So you just, it has to be picked up by the right person and done right. And you know, this is this is one that y'all producers can have for free. Yeah. I mean, I would submit the Candy Montgomery cases. There's a little bit of Man Bites Dog. And anytime you have an axe or a hatchet involved mm. in your lead, uh, that kind of does a lot of work for you. Um, but yeah, I am going to pull this Via Senior book out of the stock line and just try to read it uh, real quick this weekend and see if Bill James is right. Um, and also look around for other uh, content. 
about this case that's not Wikipedia and content about Yuba City. We'll have a bunch of links in the show notes. And uh, I recommend reading up on the Yuba County Five. It's really just one of those stories that you're like, you're never going to know, but you're just going to keep clicking until you think you know, and then you won't be able to sleep. So you're welcome. If um, all of this has made you interested in moving to Yuba City, uh, while we were talking, I pulled up the most recent uh, sort of real estate information for the region. Mm. And in the past week, an 862-square-foot home on Morton Street in Yuba City, I don't know what Morton Street is, maybe it's the main drag, sold for a 220 k 862 mm. square feet is not a lot. I'm sitting in a 990-square-foot apartment, and it's a one-bedroom with you know, a decent sized living room and a decent sized bedroom, but it's not vast by any stretch of the imagination. 862 is small. Um, and, but 220K is still. So it's 220. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 220 is work. pretty good for a house in California. It's, you know, it's near a lake, it's on a river, it's NorCal. Yeah. It's if you have California. air rights, you can make that work. Yeah. Or yeah. just. Dig it out of the ground, put it on a flatbed, and drive it to Marysville. That's my advice. Oh, no, no. I would just, if you're going to do that, then I would just, I would do new construction in Marysville. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. Just drop a shipping container somewhere in Humboldt County. Just kidding. Don't do that. You could get shot. <laughs> do not do that. Allegedly. All right, next time on the docket, I actually confess that I am not sure what we're going to be talking about. Will it be Killers of the Flower Moon? Will it be another um, city cursed by God? Who can say? Here's what I can say. Uh, We're happy to do an AMA episode. So if you have some questions for us, uh, if you have some responses to things that we've said here in the newsletter, or if you just like to suggest a case for us to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. 919-75-CRIME call or text editorial at bestevidence.fyi that goes to us both or just scroll down and leave a comment we'd love to hear from you and we thank you for listening 